Hello and welcome to the True Connections podcast from CityWire in association with M&G. In this podcast series, we ask fund selectors around the world to share their views and questions on the hottest topics in the markets for 2020, and then we get M&G fund managers to respond. Uh, for this episode, we are concentrating on fixed income, and we're going to listen to two of M&G's eminent fund managers in this area. So joining me today on the CityWire virtual network are Jim Levis, CIO of M&G's public fixed income team, and Claudia Kalich, who manages the Emerging Markets Bond Fund. So welcome to you both. Jim and Claudia, we've been talking to three fund selectors around the world to chat about the outlook for bonds this year as we go into the second half after an extraordinary first half. And these are some of the questions they had. So one was, you know, what are the biggest lessons that you think investors should take away following the big test that the pandemic provided for bonds? So, Jim, you go first. Uh, I think the biggest lesson is that central banks and governments are kind of have been following a very different course than they followed in the global financial crisis. If we remember that time, they were slow to react. You even had the ECB a couple of years after the global financial crisis hiking interest rates. Uh, we have the TARP program in the States to bail out the banks that got kicked back by Congress. And we, we had a long period of chaos and liquidation and confusion that allowed a lot of companies to go bust. It allowed banks to go bust and it allowed huge numbers of people to be made unemployed without any great safety net. This time round, I think investors know that central banks and governments have got your back. You know, it's almost been a kind of spinal tap, one louder response to monetary policy. You know, you, you look at what the market's expectations are for the European Central Bank or the Fed to do, and they go an extra $100 million, $100 billion, or a, a new scheme or something new. They've always out surprised the market to the upside in terms of what they're willing to do to avoid a Great Depression style. Uh, environment. And so I think that the lesson has been that we're not going to allow widespread defaults in the global economy and that monetary policy is going to be much, much easier and fiscal policy much more stimulative than it was in previous incidents of, of global slowdown. Great. And, and Claudia, from the emerging markets point of view, how's this played out? Yeah, I mean, clearly we saw unprecedented movements in terms of asset prices, whether it was in bonds and currencies and pretty much across the board, uh, in emerging market being a riskier asset class, of course, it will reflect that. But I think one of the key messages is those movements, they tend to occur so quickly and so disruptively that unless you've, you re reacted very, very early in the crisis, so basically if you were to register your portfolio or you know, sell out of risky assets within a, a few days, by then it's too late if you wait longer than that. So I would say is the main message is really to ride through the crisis to remain invested. If anything, we've seen this in 2008, if you basically stayed invested way a couple of weeks before Lehman and you did nothing, a few months later, you are already breaking even. So basically don't panic and sell at the bottom, staying in, which usually the next subsequent two years provide for above average returns for the asset class. Right. You both compared this to 2008, 2009, and they both featured liquidity crises. I mean, how bad was it uh, this time? Was it was it worse than 2008? Or I know spreads didn't sp spike as much as 2008, but did the market simply grind to a halt in the way it did 12 years ago? 
Um, from from government bond side, I think liquidity was really very poor. You know, you had um, liquidity even in government bonds dissipating, even in the U.S. Treasury market, the most liquid market in the world. But again, the difference between 2008 and this time round, it didn't last very long at all. And as Claudia said, if if you were at all interested in buying risky assets, you didn't have very long to do it before markets started to rebound. And all of this is tied up with the very, very swift response from central banks. So unlike last time, where it took months after Lehman defaulted before anyone dared issue a corporate bond, March, the epicenter of the lockdown, was the biggest month in history for corporate bond issuance. And that's partly because central banks reopened their corporate bond purchase programs. Because we all had the experience of 2008, we, we realized that these really elevated extreme yields weren't going to last forever. And, you know, having lived through that, we knew that we should be aggressive buyers of credit risk. So actually, the bigger liquidity problem for most of March was in the second half of March was being able to buy enough credit risk rather than worries about whether you could sell it or not. I know that emerging markets were slightly delayed in in that kind of response, wasn't it, Claudia? It didn't quite bounce back as quickly. But for us in, in credit and government bond markets, there really was only a very small window where liquidity was impaired on the, on the selling side of things. Yeah, in the emerging markets, I would say there was some similarities in terms of, um, as you said, Jim, the rebound, it took a little bit longer. Um, normally, in those big shocks, you tend to have the investment grade component of the market rebounding first, and only later you start getting the higher yield and some of the smaller issues. So I, I would say at the moment, we're still uh, on the later process. So the higher uh, yielding assets are the ones that now are finally rebounded. The investment grade pretty much has already rebounded and recovered the losses. I would say there was a couple of different things though versus a weight um, in terms of you know, the initial selling pressure and market movements was also quite driven by ETFs. We've seen an increase on ETF participation on emerging market bonds over the last decade. So I would say this was one of the factors. Um, having said that, this also provides an opportunity. So there was plenty of cheap assets because there were four sellers at that particular time. So if you happen to have been uh, uninvested or underweight, there was a wonderful opportunity to take the other side of the ETF outflows. Um, a couple other things though, I would highlight the, that if you do build a diversified portfolio, you would have found pockets of liquidity which were actually, uh, I would say, not normal for sure, but they were adequate for the needs at the time. So, for example, local currency bonds and the currency markets themselves provided very good liquidity, in fact, given the circumstances. And that was partly reason by the, the policy action by many emerging market central banks, which they also decided to either smooth out and you know, intervene in terms of uh, supporting some of their currencies for a short period of time. In some cases, they also provided, just like the some more developed market central banks, they're providing liquidity to the local bond curve by buying some longer data securities. So local market liquidity, I would say, was actually adequate. Uh, the, the, war, the worst uh, impacted areas would be the less liquid, smaller, um, high-yielding and corporate names. Right. Just, uh, Jim, you mentioned uh, there, talking about the, you know, the record new issuance in March, uh, which was extraordinary. And some got off at very low yields and some got off at very high yields. Did that surprise you? Did, was there too much appetite, if you like, for taking on too much risk and too much debt? 
Um, I think the thing that we always look at, if you're a long-term investor, you look at what the, the credit spread is paying you. And then you, from that, you can work out what level of default the market is pricing in. And we know that over a very long time frame, on average, investment grade corporate bonds, they have a default rate, a peak default rate. You know, it's going back to the 70s, 80s, 90s, global financial crisis. Over a five year period, cumulatively, I think around about three or four percent has been the all time high of defaults for investment grade bonds. And yet in March this year and April this year, we were pricing in default rates of nearly 20% for investment grade bonds. So more than five times higher than the, the worst ever default experience over 50 years. And you could, of course, argue that we've never seen a world that's completely closed down economically uh, and globally for months on end. So it, it is different, and we, we, we bear that in mind. But nevertheless, when, when you put the level of bond spreads compared to even... Um, very, very pessimistic default expectations. And at the same time, as you know, that central banks have got your back to some extent, it made sense to be heavy investors in that, in that marketplace. The other good thing for bond investors is that we get paid what's called a new issue premium. So like, unlike equities, where it's very rare to get IPOs nowadays, I think last year was the, the lowest level of IPOs in the UK in, in history, Whereas in, in bond world, because all the bonds mature all the time, companies are forever issuing new issues. And whenever you issue a new issue, you, you have to uh, offer a higher yield in order to entice buyers. And at the time of March and April, that new issue premium was around about 50 basis points more than their existing bonds. So on top of the fact that spreads have widened dramatically, companies were paying an additional yield on top of that to get their deals away so it was a it was a fantastic time to be a corporate bond fund manager in in march and april if you had cash available and if you were prepared to take the long view which i'm taking both of you did have cash available yeah <laughs> good what were you, i mean you know a lot of redemptions going on were you how, how were those flows for your for the funds that you look after Maybe Claudia first. Claudia, I'm sorry. Maybe Claudia first. Sure, no problem. Um, no, we did have uh, one fund that was uh, a little bit of redemptions, but actually it was actually much less than I anticipated. Uh, one of the things I did during the crisis was to build a bit of a cash cushion, uh, either to be used in case of redemptions, but also eventually to be used to buy securities that, as Jim pointed out, in many cases they were so cheap and we did participate subsequently in various new issues and we were able to, to earn this new issue premium. Um, so, I mean, retrospectively, uh, the redemptions were less than what the industry and what we saw back in 2008, uh, but there was some, but again, the bottom line is if you build a portfolio that is quite diversified and you know where the pockets and liquidity are, there was no problems whatsoever in meeting them. Great. And for you, Jim? Um, yeah, we, we've seen, um, you know, flows as normal, really. They, they picked up outflows, picked up in March in some of the credit funds, in more of the government bond macro funds. It was a, a time of inflows. So there was a mix. But as Claudia said, um, I think that people generally have learnt the lessons of the global financial crisis and saw the central bank reaction. And as a result of that, and as a result of 
you know, the Bank of England saying it was going to buy corporate bonds, the Fed buying even high yield ETFs, there wasn't any, anything of the panic that you might have anticipated given the economic backdrop. And so I don't think that generally the fund management industry uh, saw the outflow wave that you might have anticipated. Do you think, I mean, looking at what the central banks did, and particularly the Fed, which is obviously the, the biggest beast of all, do you think there's a, a danger that they're encouraging a sort of Fed put or, uh, you know, people to forget about moral hazard that, you know, if there's another crisis like this, the Fed will always be there? Yeah, I, I think that that is true. And uh, I think that people have talked about moral hazard, talked about, remember, at the time of, of Northern Rock defaulting um, in the UK and, we had a Bank of England governor at the time, Mervyn King, who was allegedly in favour of allowing it to, to go bust. But then, you know, when the BBC News started leading with pensioners queuing up at 5am, hundreds of them outside, you can see that what, what becomes a kind of moral thing also is a system, systemic thing. And so I think everyone has done the right thing. On, uh, and Alistair Darling did the right thing back then in bailing out the banks because it is so important you can argue about whether we should have let them become so important but the fact is that they are and so there is definitely a link between financial stability and employment at the end of the day and I think that perhaps you can argue that governments and central bankers should have done more to get money into the hands of people rather than companies but I've got to say that you know you you would mark government responses to this so far pretty good in terms of the furlough schemes um, that have kept money in people's pockets even if they're not working and you know I would say that that it for me is the, the best thing that's happened in this crisis are, are the furlough schemes that have allowed people to, to to keep on having a high level of income relative to their their previous incomes rather than being made unemployed. My, my worry is now that those furlough schemes will start to evaporate or be scaled down and a lot of people walking around the UK today who think they are on furlough are actually unemployed at the moment and and won't have jobs to go back to and that's going to be the real challenge going forwards. Right because I mean I always think you know if someone left planet earth on January the 1st and came back on June the 30th and they saw the S&P down a few percent and bond markets down a few percent. Yeah, nothing happened uh, and hadn't appreciated. You know, is there a danger of, of, of complacency for what is uh, primarily a, a uh, you know, a terrible health pandemic uh, that we haven't got rid of yet? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's lots of talk about what letter we use to describe this um this recovery, you know, is it going to be V-shaped? And I think there has been some optimism in recent weeks that we've seen some of the, the purchasing managers surveys, for instance, show recoveries and people have interpreted that as everything's going to get back to normal, shops are reopening and so forth. But I do think there's going to be some very long-term uh, long damage to the economy um, that's going to result in lower growth rates for the foreseeable future. When it comes to letters, U-shaped is another one, which is a, a long, prolonged uh, downturn before we recover. A Nike swoosh, which is a, a recovery, but a slow one. The best one I've saw recently is, is probably a K-shaped recovery, which I hadn't heard before. But a K-shaped recovery is a complete collapse like we've seen. And then the halves do very well. 
uh, and that's the top bit of the K sloping upwards. And the haves not have nots um, are going to do very badly out of this. So, uh, you know, that's probably where you know this is set up for more inequality going forwards, which puts us in a dangerous place. Exactly, uh, populism. Claudia, uh, where are the emerging markets now? Uh, on the one hand. You know, many will be economically harder hit. Perhaps you know an analogy to uh, Jim's K shape. Some will go up, some will go down. Uh, how how are you sorting these out from a from a macro point of view? Yeah, the good thing of the asset class is um, it has really grown a lot over the last decade. So we have many more issuers, countries, and corporates that we can choose to invest in, and most of them would have uh, you know different characteristics, different policy responses to the crisis, whether it's fiscal, monetary, different starting points in terms of uh, debt levels and so forth. So one of the key things we need to understand and determine is whether a country is having just a liquidity crisis or it is also a solvency crisis. So if it is only a liquidity crisis, we have looked at all the the issues that we have in the portfolio and in the universe to determine which way you know, they would uh, most likely to go. Um, there has been a lot of international initiatives being driven by the IMF and other international financial organizations to precisely bridge this liquidity gap. So in other words, even though the macro situation might be very difficult in several countries for the next, let's say, 12 months or so, uh, that doesn't mean necessarily we're going to have a wave of default because there will be some additional funding that can cover this gap for a while and more critical in our view would be how do those countries respond over the time period, but also then going forward. If they're not in distress, if that is sustainable, then I see no reason why those countries will go belly up. So there are several opportunities that we find at the moment in the markets. Uh, again, when we're just talking about a liquidity crisis, not necessarily a solvency issue. Right. And one for both of you do you think you know the markets have rebounded uh and as, you know the, the price they're putting on defaults has obviously come down from uh from the the depths of this crisis i was going to say a peak but obviously it was a depth uh is there still room for further uh, for further growth uh in prices uh are we going to see 2008 9 again where you know, you had a fantastic 18, 24 months uh, following the following the uh, great financial crisis. I mean, for me, I, I think that credit markets have rebounded so strongly that it's time to start reducing some of my corporate bond exposure and high yield exposure. But it looks like emerging markets still do offer that premium yield globally at the moment. So if I'm looking for value in, in bond markets anywhere, I'd kind of rank it as government bonds offering least value, uh, but of course offering some of that protective characteristics in your portfolio. So it's still worthwhile having some of them as a kind of multi-asset fixed income investor. Um, high yield potentially offering some of the least value at the moment for me. Um, investment grade where you've got these big uh, central bank programs, still some value but it's emerging markets, I think, that offers the higher levels of value in, in the more risky assets. And maybe Claudia can expand on that. 
Yes. So within the emerging markets, um, we don't find a lot of value now in investment grade, whether it's on corporates or sovereign bonds, uh, just because they pretty much recover most of the, the losses uh, since COVID. So the area we're focusing more are uh, is a couple fold. One is selectively some of the high yield, both sovereigns and also corporates. Again, there's different countries or corporates with different um, characteristics and industries and so forth, whether they are importers or exporters of commodities, dependent or not on tourism or, or not. So there is quite a bit to choose from. So we have the exposure in some frontier countries, some corporate bonds in Mexico, Brazil, China, for example. Uh, but the other area of the market we also find uh, still attractive is uh, some of the local bonds and uh, duration basically in selective local markets. Uh, one of the things we've seen is inflation has, of course, collapsed globally, but in some countries in emerging markets, inflation has also remained extremely low despite some currency depreciations. So basically the pass-through from the currency to inflation is quite low given the large output gap in a lot of those economies. So countries like Indonesia or Uruguay, we find uh, particularly attractive in that space. Fantastic. Uh, before we wrap up, let's talk, as we always must talk, about ESG and how do you work and weave an ESG strategy through, throughout all this disruption? Well, in the M&G range, we've got some dedicated ESG funds, including those in the high yield space and including those in the emerging market space. So you can choose, really. You can have really explicit funds that make exclusions for certain industries and certain names and type of businesses and then screen for the best companies within the remaining sectors on an ESG basis. So if you want pure ESG, you can get that. But I think the good thing about what we do at MG is that all of our funds have ESG integrated into them anyway nowadays. So all of them have some degree of exclusions. Um, um, and all of them have, from a fundamental credit point of view, ESG deeply embedded into, in, into what they do. So when we look at a company and invest in a company for any of our bond funds, it's been through these ESG screens already. That may not be as extreme as some of the, the, the explicit ESG funds, but I think you, you know, all of our funds take account of ESG, and I think that will be you know, going forwards um, what all good fund managers will do. Great. And Claudia, the same process in the emerging markets? Pretty much the same. We do use the same resources from an ESG perspective as uh, the ones that uh, Jim just highlighted. Uh, we also have a dedicated emerging market corporate ESG fund available as well. Uh, I would say the key criteria for ESG that we always monitor is embedded uh, and it does reflect the quality of the institutions or any particular uh, risks, whether they're environmental or so forth. And uh, I think one of the things we're looking through this crisis is to see whether the quality of the institutions also reflects how those countries responded to COVID. Um, and in some cases, we've had some smaller countries that actually have responded quite well to COVID. Uh, you know, we have very few cases in, case, in countries like Uruguay, which is one of the, also the reasons I like the credit. Uh, we got countries such as Rwanda, for example, in Africa, where we also invested that. Incidentally, they were just... Um, uh, added to the EU list of uh, allowed, allowed countries to, to return to, to the EU for tourism purposes. So clearly within the ESG, there's a lot of different uh, institutions behind it. Uh, and for us, it does provide quite a bit of opportunities to, to invest in those credits. Brilliant. Uh, well, thank you very much. We're going to wrap up the True Connections podcast 
from CityWire and M&G there. Uh, thank you, Jim Liebis. Thank you, Claudia Kalich. I think it's been a fascinating discussion and hope to speak to you again very soon. See ya. Thanks. Thank you. Cheers.